This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we're looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from the four Gospels put together in one chronological flow. Ben, last time we looked at some of the first followers and surprising first opponents of Jesus, his family and neighbors and perhaps friends that he grew up with in his home community were those early opponents. Today, we're going to dive into the first miracles and the ministry moments of Jesus. In fact, those listening, if you want to turn to John chapter 2, that would be a great place for us to get started and take a look at that. We, we find the story picking up in John chapter 2, and it's right away in verse 1. And it's, it's Jesus showing up at a wedding. And, you know, a lot of times we think of Jesus only doing hyper-spiritual things, which he does a lot of, healing people and ministering to people and preaching and teaching and, and all those kinds of things. But sometimes he just hangs out with people. And here we have him hanging out at a, at a wedding. Now, Ben, you're a, you're a pastor. You, you've done a few weddings. Um, you've you've been at a few weddings. I suppose you were at your own. You, <laughs> you're married. Um, what what are your How thoughts? perceptive of you? What, what are your thoughts on on weddings, my friend? They're a great celebration. You know, as I tell brides and prospective uh, grooms, um, it's the kickoff uh, for every for the rest of your life for the every day for the rest of your life. Um, but yeah, what a great celebration as uh, two people come together to uh, commit themselves, uh, to engage into covenantal commitment till death do us part, right? Uh, but to engage in covenantal commitment and make that commitment before God and family and friends. That word covenant's a pretty big word in Scripture. Yeah. Yeah. We, we'll spend some time with that, I think, throughout this year. Yeah. And to get a deeper understanding of what God's covenant kind of means and, and how is marriage maybe a covenantal relationship to some degree among people. Do you prefer to do weddings or funerals as a pastor? I appreciate them both for what they are. And so while the joy of a wedding um, obviously is, uh, is something that, that I welcome as uh, two people are, again, entering into or professing their covenantal commitment, the idea that I'm going to uh, unfailingly love this person um, for the rest of my days, uh, while the joy of that obviously surpasses anything that you will find uh, in a funeral, there's also the element of uh, the funeral that brings the, um, that brings the eternal promise of Christ to light in such a way that mm. we oftentimes neglect. Um, it's when it, it really has real teeth to it as we are confronted by death. What, where did you and Sherry get married? We got married at a Mount Pleasant Christian Church on the south side of Indianapolis Okay, in, in Greenwood. Yeah, that's where Sherry had, uh, was going to church at the time, and uh, that's where we went. Had yeah. a premarital counseling with Jack Heaston, who was one of the associate pastors there. And uh, still remember that like it was yesterday. It's been almost, it'll be 23 years next, uh, next month. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Lisa and I got married in Evansville, Indiana. Her father was a pastor, so we got married in his church at 
at Bethel United Church of Christ. And also her brother, who is a pastor, was part of the service. There's a whole slew of pastors in my wife's family, so you can't even count them. They're as numerous as the stars in the sky. I think that's how that works. But we were honored for them to both be part of of our wedding. It's been a over 38 years ago now, so what a blessing that is. Well, you know, a lot of times for, for pastors, they, they do have a few challenges in weddings, and sometimes it can be the people who are part of the wedding themselves. Sometimes maybe it can even be the mother of the bride. Here the challenge is the mother of the guest. So it becomes a little interesting as we look at the story that Jesus was at this wedding and his family was at the wedding too. And his disciples were at the wedding. You see that in verse 1, verse 11, verse 12. We can see different members of the family in John chapter 2 that were at the wedding. But things turn interesting in verse 5. So let me just pick up the story in John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. She just makes a statement to her son. A statement that may have sounded kind of like a request, maybe a demand. Kind of like when your mom probably used to tell you, Your room is messy. Right. That wasn't just an observation that she was making. No, that was i.e. go clean your room now. So she says, They have no more wine. And his response to us looks to be maybe a bit rude, like, woman, why do you involve me? But I don't believe that was the tone in his voice. We don't have the tone recorded in the words of Scripture, but the word that is used there is maybe more respectful than we would see when we we would call our own mom woman. Right. right. That would not have gone well for me. Yeah. For any of you uh, high schoolers who are listening to this, I do not recommend you calling your mom a woman when you don't want to do something. But I I I love the response that she has. She doesn't even respond to him. She just turns to the serpents and says, do whatever he tells you. What what do you think is happening? You think that she's just saying subtly, no, you're going to do it, boy. Or is she saying, well, if he tells you to do nothing, do nothing. If he tells you to do something, do something. I mean, you have any speculation here? There's always this thought around Mary, you know, what did she know? Every Christmas season, there's always this debate about this, you know, song, Mary, did you know? Um, And whether the song itself is rhetorical or what's implied there, or of course Mary knew. What's evident throughout the scripture is that there are certain things, while Mary uh, knew, um, the nature of her son, the fullness of what he had come to accomplish and do is not something that she fully grasped at the time. And we see that playing out really in this narrative uh, here as she comes to Jesus basically implying that, hey, we're out of wine. We need you to, you know, uh, go make some more. Um, But yeah, I think at this point uh, in the narrative, it's it's kind of like whatever he wants to do, whatever he tells you to do, you know, just go and do whatever he discerns or decides yeah. to do. 
um, follow up on it. So his, his movement then is not toward his mother. And in verses six through eight, Jesus' movement is toward the actual servants who are working at the wedding banquet. And he tells them to fill the jars with water. And you can do some math calculations, look at footnotes in the Bible. This is somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of water. And and my question as I look at this is, why did the servants obey the guest? I mean, I, I can see why you would o- obey the master of the ceremonies or or the bride or the, back in their day, the groom. But the guest, that's... I don't know, we don't have an answer to that, but it's just a curious, that's, that's a lot of work, 120 to 180 gallons of water that you got to go get out and haul in and fill up these big jars. Sure. That's, a, you know, five-gallon buckets weigh a lot. And <laughs> so that, that's a lot of hauling them back and forth. And they, for some reason, obey him. Yeah, it would seem that Mary, her voice uh, carries some weight at the wedding. And so whatever her relationship to the bride or the groom is, uh, Mary has some sort of prominent role, it would seem, at this wedding. She must have been something. She must have been known well or relative or something at the bank. Then the next action is Jesus and the master of the banquet himself. And we pick up that in verse 9. They, they went ahead and filled the water up and drew some of, the, of it out. And it says in verse 9, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, which, by the way, that's no small miracle because if I remember just a little bit about chemistry, wine is not H2O. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, a, it's actually changing it from one set of elements to another set of elements and, I guess, aging it all at the same time. Yeah. It's pretty miraculous. So the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he, then he, that's the master of the banquet, drew the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. And then there's nothing. Jesus does not take any credit. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, that, this is something I did as to honor the, the bride and honor the groom and to honor the master of the banquet and to honor my mother. He says nothing. What's that? Beats me. <laughs> <laughs> Beats me too. It's an, it's an odd thing. Of course, we don't know if he said something and it just wasn't recorded in, by John sure. in this passage, but you would think if he said something and made a declaration, it might have been written down, and it becomes an interesting thing. And then the last piece of it is there in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's an interesting phrase to me, Ben, that the disciples were already following him. They'd mm-hmm. already left their boats. They'd left their fishing business. They'd left their, some of their other jobs and, and family. They were already following him around, but now they believed in him. Is there, is there a, like, what's the order for somebody to come to faith? You, you come, you hang out, you, you follow around, you, you believe, you grow, or 
you believe first and then you get involved. I mean, there is no particular order, sure. right? But it's just an interesting juxtaposition of these these two ideas together that they were already following him. And now it says they believed in him. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I you know, I can consider my own walk uh, with Christ and how I ultimately came to Christ. Um, you know, initially, I, I mean, I was, uh, and, and it's amazing to me sometimes how God works, how God moves, how God catches us. And so, you know, when I was a, a senior in high school, my mother uh, dragged me to church one morning and uh, while at church, well, I, where I did not want to be, my mom had become a recent convert to Christ, and so she was all about sharing Jesus with us, with my brother and I. So she drags me to church one morning where I did not want to be, and immediately, immediately, my heart was grabbed hold of during the service through the morning announcements. Um, <laughs> shockingly, not possible. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but there was an announcement about the, the need for a young girl, Leslie O'Keefe, who was two years old. She had leukemia, and they needed somebody to donate platelets. Uh, and my dad had recently passed away uh, from cancer. Mm-hmm. And so immediately, my heart was grabbed, and I just gravitated to this opportunity. Could have cared, cared less about anything else that happened in the service that day. Uh, but immediately wanted to donate platelets, wanted to to do something to help this little girl out. And I started to come back to church on Sunday just for the sake of updates uh, for Leslie. And then out of that, they had opened up a, what, you know, a, a study on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we had talked about, uh, I think, last week or the week before, uh, just briefly in, in my own uh my, my own journey uh, of faith toward Christ. And uh, my mom was like, hey, you should, you know, you should go and, and do that. And uh, I had no interest in that. But when I was donating platelets one day, the senior pastor of the church was donating platelets too. And he was the one leading this study on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And he's like, hey, you should come and join us at the, for the study. Just, you know, come and see. Come learn more wow. about Jesus. And uh, went and after about 10 or 12 weeks uh, in, that, in that class, um, my Christ began to, to start to really take hold in my life that ultimately brought me uh, to faith. And I can't tell you a day or a time um, or a moment of conversion uh, when, I, when I believed, but there was this gradual movement toward, toward faith. And so we see this, I think, with the, with the disciples, where most of them have really come to follow Jesus on the testimony of John the Baptist. Um, several of them, you know, were disciples of John the Baptist, and through his testimony uh, toward Christ, they start to follow Christ, and now they've seen this miracle take place, and they recognize or affirm his divinity. It's this first moment, while they don't totally grasp I think the whole, obviously, of why Jesus has come, they have come to believe in him. They see him, I think, through the lens of, his, of, of the fact that he's Christ, the, the Christ. Yeah, that's a really good word. I, I think that's the, really the situation for most of us, that our, our movement toward Christ is gradual. And I know that's the, my story as well. Mm-hmm. I, as I've said before, I grew up in the church, grew up in the faith, but there, I can't give you a, a day or an hour mm-hmm. when I was 
now a believer. It, it, I can give you six or seven of them and give you lots of them when they were these moments in time, but really it was this drawing, the wooing of the Holy Spirit to draw me toward the things of Christ. And, mm-hmm. and that may be what's happening here as well. Well, the scene shifts pretty abruptly. And w- when you pick up, when you go from John 2.12 to 2.13, they're no longer in Cana up north in Galilee. Now they're in Jerusalem down south in Judea. So it was time for the Passover. John has more than one Passover that he mentioned. And this is the first Passover celebration where Jesus is now in ministry with his disciples. And he goes to the temple courts, and it's the famous story, one of the famous stories of the clearing or cleansing of the temple. There were a lot of things going on at the temple that were probably not right. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, what was the temple? And what was it about? And maybe what were some things that were supposed to go on there? Or what were some things that were going on there? Give us a Cliff Notes version of temple life in that day. Well, one of the things we see here relative to the Passover is you have, uh, you know, Jews from all over the place flocking to Jerusalem. And so uh, Jerusalem has swelled to, you know, probably several hundred thousand uh, people and many of those, when they traveled, they didn't travel with animals, and so uh, part of the ritual sacrifice uh, during the Passover, they would have needed to purchase animals, and so we see that they have set up um, the sale of, of animals uh, in the temple. You've got money changers there. You've got people coming again from out of town, from distant places. Yeah, there were there were more people, more Jewish people living outside That's Israel right. in Jesus' day than lived inside. Israel for a variety of reasons. So, and they had lots of rules, right? You had to have this kind of animal. Yep. They had to have this kind of perfection or lack of blemishes right. on them. And right. you had to use this kind of money to get to pay your offerings, uh, so to speak. And there was a little bit of a, was it a racket? Most likely. Yeah. Yeah. Which ultimately, as, as you're pointing to, sets Jesus off. So you got Jesus happy and celebrating at a wedding. And now you got him ticked off right. and flipping over tables right. at the church, at the temple. The, these, these stories like next to each other show a very human side of Jesus. Do they not? They do. And they also show, you know, they show his righteous uh, anger uh, within the context of the temple um, that worship is being profaned. So, so he, he flips these tables over and, and sets the animals free and gets everybody, gets everybody angry. Then, then people show up and start questioning him, like, who do you think you are? Verse 18, what sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? And here's his statement, which is super interesting in verse 19. We're in John chapter 2, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they, they go off and say, oh, dude, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to build it back in three days. Verse 21 says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. So from the get-go, Jesus understood, we know, we can see from this, he knew that his body, 
would be destroyed, would be crucified, and that it would be raised in three days. And so he's using the temple, the physical temple, to speak of his body, which is the spiritual temple, and what was to come. The, the disciples probably didn't get all this at the moment, sure. right? They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to understand it. What is he doing? What is he talking about? But as we look back at the comprehensive message of the Gospels, or the Gospel of John in particular, we can see exactly what he was saying. Mm -hmm. It was a powerful thing. What does this statement mean for us as, as believers in Christ that destroy this temple, Jesus said, and I will raise it again in three days? As it relates to the temple, to the physical temple, what we see is that worship is going to be mediated through Christ, not through a physical building, but through a risen Savior. And that our, our worship centers in Him. So it's not tied to a physical location. It's not tied to a church building uh, or the accruci uh, you know, or to the accruciments, right? I probably said that incorrectly. It's part of my uh, Southern the, the Louisiana uh, yeah, uh, dialect coming out. But yeah, the stuff of the church, the stuff of the temple, physical location, worship is, not, is no longer tied to physical location, but to our Savior. That's perfect. In, in fact, that's a segue to our next session next time when Jesus uh, spends some time talking to a Samaritan woman yeah, and the whole idea of true worship, where that worship is held, how that worship is done. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or find our church app. Click on the Life of Jesus link. That'll take you to more elements in this year-long study of the life of Jesus, things like daily gospel reading, devotions, poems. You got any, any final words for us, my, my good friend? No. No, I look forward to the conversation next week on the Samaritan woman, uh, where Jesus speaks to the idea of worshiping in truth and in spirit.